You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. If you are in the U.S. and you are a user of beauty products, chances are that you've been in an Ulta Beauty store or visited Ulta.com. Ulta Beauty is the largest beauty retailer in the country. It has more than 1,300 stores across 50 states and employs more than 45,000 people. And today we're pleased to have as one of our guests on this episode, the CEO of Ulta Beauty, and I'll introduce him in a minute. But our specific topic today is Black representation in the beauty industry. We'll be talking about the experiences of Black consumers when they shop for beauty products and the experiences of Black entrepreneurs and Black professionals in the beauty industry. And McKinsey just released a report on this topic, and I encourage you to read it in its entirety on McKinsey.com and watch the accompanying videos, which really do help bring the report findings to life. Two of the authors of that report are with us today as well, so I'll briefly introduce everyone, and then we'll start getting into it. And I'll do it alphabetically by first name. So I'll start with Dave. Dave Kimball is the CEO of Ulta Beauty, which had $8.6 billion in sales in 2021. And I think you've just celebrated one year in the role. So happy anniversary, Dave. Dave took on the CEO role in June 2021, but he's been with Ulta since 2014 when he joined as chief marketing officer. And Dave has had a long career in retail and consumer goods. His past employers have included P&G, PepsiCo, and the household products company, Seventh Generation. And Ulta recently reported Q1 results and they were very, very, very strong. So congratulations, Dave, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Monica, and I'm really excited to be here to discuss this uh, important topic. Christy Weaver is one of the authors of the Black Representation and Beauty Report. She's a senior partner based in our Chicago office, and she leads McKinsey's work in the beauty sector in North America. And she advises companies on a range of topics, including organizational design, transformation, post-merger management, and category strategy. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thanks so much, Monica. And another of the report's authors is Tiffany Burns, a McKinsey senior partner based in Atlanta. She leads McKinsey's work on retail stores in North America, and she also leads what we call 10 Actions, McKinsey's efforts to fight racism and achieve greater racial equity for Black Americans. Thanks for your time today, Tiffany. Thanks, Monica. Looking forward to it. So we're going to get right into the report. It was a huge research effort, right? Consumer surveys, plus a focus group with 110 Black consumers, plus visits to more than 100 retail stores and geospatial analysis of store locations, interviews with a couple dozen beauty industry insiders and so on. And uh, we'll talk about the highlights of the report during the course of this conversation. But I'm curious, which of the report findings were most surprising to each of you? Tiffany, as not just, you know, one of the report's co-authors, but as a Black beauty consumer yourself, maybe you can start. I think that the... Um, different elements, you know, in the realization, if we think about the Black consumer shopping experience, I think all of the different sort of pain points and challenges with the experience as sort of individual pain points weren't surprising. What was surprising is when you put it all together in sort of an end-to-end experience and you say, wow, as a Black beauty consumer or as a Black beauty founder, you know, it's really challenging. And I think for the Black beauty entrepreneur, 
you know, when it's already so hard to be an entrepreneur in general, and then we layer on top of all of those challenges, sort of added challenges. Um, I think that was one of the, the things that I stepped back and said, look, you know, I think we all know there are things that we can do to make it better, but in aggregate, it is quite challenged. And I think the need to make it better is definitely something that, you know, I got a lot more focus on after, after, after seeing it kind of framed that way when we were putting it all together. I think absolutely the, just the inequity across the journey for the consumers, you know, at every given moment from marketing to accessibility, to availability, to sales experience, that was, you know, very, very shocking and enlightening to me personally. Um, I also thought what was quite interesting was, you know, from a, a black founder perspective, the inequity in terms of the financing and ability to raise capital. But then when you look at it and you actually see this sort of um, success of black brands versus non-black brands. That was also quite quite interesting to me. And then the last was um, was the representation of under four to five percent of black professionals and all the large beauty houses and retailers and you know other sort of industry um, constituents. I just I I think I probably knew that, but but it was very startling to me just to see that. And obviously those are the types of folks that are making decisions about what you know brands are gonna be assorted in store and you know what brands we're gonna support and the product development, et cetera. So those are probably the three things that were the most surprising to me or enlightening to me. And Monica, I would just add, we've been studying, others in the industry have been studying this uh, you know, topic for a little while, uh, but what this report did so well was bring together, as Tiffany said, kind of laid it out in a really clear, the combination of pain points and challenges, the individual aspects, whether your marketing or your product availability, uh, you know, the sales experience, uh, those are areas that we've been you know, aware of and have been working hard on. But again, to get the, co the, the comprehensive view of this that this report brings and the insight from both industry leaders and consumers was really powerful. Agree. You know, one of the things that the report really brings out is sort of the, the relentlessness of the pain points, right, at every stage of the process for Black consumers. Uh, you know, they have to travel farther than white consumers to get to beauty products, and then they get to a store and they can't find the product, either because the store doesn't carry them or in the back or in they're out of stock or, you know, and then store employees aren't knowledgeable about Black beauty products because most of the store employees aren't Black and so on. But let's talk about what it means to be a Black brand, right? Because a brand can be black founded and it can be black owned. Uh, and another of the striking pieces of data in the report to me was that among the 45 black beauty brands that you identified, only nine are not black owned, but those nine account for 82% of the total revenue of black brands. Christy and Tiffany, talk about what those stats mean. We want to see products that are for, you know, black consumers being provided by black founders, right? Where, where, you know, where it makes sense, right? And so I think when we saw that uh, statistic you shared, Monica, it was a little bit to say, okay, we, you know, we thought that some of these were black founded and being black led, but they're not, right? And so there's, there's that. Um, however, on the flip side of it, we also do want black founded brands to exit right? Like we want black entrepreneurs to have the same opportunity for wealth creation as all entrepreneurs. 
And we want them to be able to start a business, grow a business. And if there's a buyer who thinks that that business, you know, could they could do more to take it to the next level of growth, et cetera. We want those entrepreneurs to exit. And, you know, on the flip side, we want to help that help close the racial wealth gap. And so I think that, you know, it's not a clear answer that that means a bad outcome, you know, or a bad result. I think in, in some cases it makes sense. I think what the thing that was surprising is there really isn't good understanding amongst consumers on who owns what. And you had some consumers who thought that they were supporting a brand that was continuing to be sort of, you know, black founded and black led that wasn't. And so there's a little bit more of transparency in it that I think it would be helpful, but I don't think that we want folks to walk away and say, we don't want, you know, products targeting black consumers to not continue to be owned by and, and driven by black founders because that could be a good thing. One of the things that black founders are challenged with is when they do think about those exit, those exits, right? Because they somewhat get penalized with black consumers to say, this was a black brand and now it, you know, it's not anymore. And, you know, I, I think we want all black, you know, kids to grow up and believe that they could start a business, they could exit, but you know, they're not going to be punished by also the community you know, that supported them. And so I think some of those emotional connections that Black consumers have with Black brands sometimes turn into a bit of a challenge when those transitions take place. So it's a pretty complicated topic, but it's good that we're talking about it. As Tiffany described, I think it's important to have role models of folks that founded, but I also think it's important to have role models of folks that exited. And in many cases, those founders are still playing roles with the large consumer goods organizations, right? Whether playing an informal role or running the business. Tiffany did mention the potential consumer disconnect and the fact that most black consumers do feel like they want to support a, a, a black owned brand. But I think where I would suggest is the opportunity is as long as we continue to serve the needs of the black consumers, I don't think we should um, cast a a negative light on folks that have exited versus not as long as those brands continue to meet the needs of black consumers right so i think that that's the important distinction dave is ulta making distinctions between businesses that are black founded black owned and black led say more about how retailers should be thinking about those distinctions if at all well we look across the spectrum and i would reiterate the importance of what both uh, christy and tiffany just talked about we cannot create a disincentive for black founders to do what they think is right for their business and for themselves. Entrepreneur, it's hard to be an entrepreneur. And I'm fortunate in this role to have met many entrepreneurs. Uh, beauty is a great industry for entrepreneurs, broadly speaking. As I look at Richelieu Dennis, uh, founder of Shea Moisture, um, and the impact he's had after, I mean, before for sure, but after he's, uh, you know, decided to um, you know, partner with Unilever and giving back to the community in ways that are extending the impact in really powerful ways. So I think it's really important. And well, reality is most of the time when a brand moves and does sell to a strategic, they're very established. And that's probably why those statistics are cute. They're the biggest and strongest and ones that have had the biggest impact. So that's the ones that the Unilevers of the world and others are uh, you know, going to be probably most uh, attracted to. So uh, we we support those brands. We find ways to continue to grow them. But the real work has to happen at the ad entrepreneur stage uh, when they're just starting out. And so we you know we we're doing a lot in that space to set up programs to make sure smaller brands are getting a great start and can be the next big brand in the space. 
Christy and Tiffany, you know, in the report, you say that among the most important changes that retailers should make is to be able to work with small entrepreneurs. Talk a little bit about what specific changes that means. Like what do companies actually have to do? And then maybe Dave, you can say a little bit about how Ulta has changed some of its um, processes in order to allow it to work better with small entrepreneurs. I think the way that a retailer partners with a small brand is quite different than a midsize and quite different than a large brand. It's more than just, you know, what is the distribution and how many stores are gonna, am I going to you know, put the brand through? But it might even be things as early as um, ability to think about how do you continue to modify with contract manufacturing the ingredient profile, right? How do I actually get the branding and the branding proposition? You know, founders may not realize the magnitude of going into 1300 stores and may think that they've got the inventory and the supply chain, but then, you know, there's challenges and then it creates, you know, availability on shelf and then it becomes, you know, a virtuous cycle. We say when big brands partner with big retailers, it's kind of the, the top to top conversations. I think it might be the reverse of that is maybe some of the, the counseling and wisdom of what it's really going to take. And, you know, the ambition level of, of maybe starting at one level and growing to another level. I just think the dialogue may need to change. And I'm sure that Ulta Beauty and, and other beauty retailers are doing some of that today. But I think it's sort of a, a, a different type of, of dialogue and a different type of capability set of the merchants and, and other folks in the organization than partnering with large brands. Yeah, and I know, Monica, your question was more about the retailers, but I will just in a little bit of the needs um, of the founders. I think one of the things, because we we've been having a lot of conversations with founders and trying to figure out how we can bring McKinsey capabilities to bear and some of the tools and capabilities we have around sourcing and um, you know, even thinking about ingredients and you know, sort of all of those things and how we can bring those to help more founders um, in very specific areas, pricing, you know, all of that. One of the things we found was there's a bit of like getting your house in order and going slow in the beginning to go fast in the future. I think that that's exactly right. Connecting it back to what Chrissy was saying around how do we help in the one-on-one, -on -one, the lessons learned, some of the things that say, hey, we have history to know that if you go from X to Y, it's too fast, right, in this time, and maybe we should walk down this path instead. And I think that that, you know, that's not always what a, I think an entrepreneur would want to hear because an entrepreneur wants to hear, hey, I'm in this many doors on this many shelves, but sometimes it's setting the business up for failure. And so we've been trying to bake in some of those lessons learned in the program we're doing. But I also think that, you know, organizations like Ulta that have track record here, you know, I think have a lot of that wisdom to share. But, you know, I, I know, Dave, you guys are doing much more than that, but I think it is the coaching and the one-on-one -on -one advice, um, I think is critical. I will say for a long time, we've recognized the distinction and the need to uh, support emerging smaller brands. What's different here though, uh, is, and that's what the report highlights, is the added uh, complexity that black entrepreneurs have to face. And that's I think here where the distinction is. So yes, we do have a long focus and we kind of know how to help small businesses. When you layer in the unique uh, challenges, the limited access to capital, the, the network um, effect or constraints that's highlighted in the, in the report, the lack of access to insights, higher or unclear expectations for merchants. So that's an area that we've definitely identified that is on top of our core efforts to help small brands, whoever is founding them succeed. 
what do we need to make sure we're doing for black entrepreneurs? Uh, we launched our accelerator program uh, specifically to help address that. Uh, we've invested in programs like the New Voices Fund to, to bring capital in. So we're attempting to make a difference in there. But I think here the focus on top of helping support small brands, which I think we do a decent job, uh, what else do we need to do for this community so we have more great success stories going forward? You know, the report makes clear that many actions need to be taken by many stakeholders to reach greater equity for Black beauty consumers and brands. Do you feel like there are areas that the in which the industry is making good progress or has made good progress over the past few years? Uh, and on the flip side, I guess, which problems seem to be the hardest ones to solve? I do believe that we're making progress as an industry, and that's that's encouraging. There is a ton more that all of us need to do. The elevation of focus over the last two years is, is creating some positive change. And, and I see that in, in the brands, the assortment in the investment and focus and opportunity around black entrepreneurs to give more opportunity for these black entrepreneurs to drive uh, greater impact and success. We have evolved at Ulta and I know many others have the representation of all beauty and specifically black beauty in, in marketing and communication so everyone can see themselves and feel represented in this really emotional, important industry. So I do see change, uh, but I also am clear that in this report highlights it, uh, there's a lot more that has to happen. I think one of the areas that I'm, uh, everything is really important. Uh, it's all really important. The area that I think is probably a you know, most, um, I guess, critical to continue to invest in is that in-store in experience. Uh, I can, in my seat, control uh, directly what's in our advertising, for example. And so we can make change pretty quickly on, on that. I can, I am, and our teams, the Old Beauty team can, uh, you know, uh, expand our assortment and make choices there. We can invest in that. What's, what is more challenging just because it is millions of touch points across, in our case, 1300 stores and, and all of our competitor stores to ensure that every experience is truly reflective of what we want it to be, that everybody feels valued, that everybody is welcomed, that every single Ulta Beauty associate, we have 44,000 of them, uh, deliver an experience that's up to our expectations, that's inviting and welcoming and, and, and encouraging and well-educated and trained and uh, delivering a great experience to every guest. And you see in the report that uh, that's not true enough of the time for our Black guests. And so that one is an area that we're spending a lot of time on, a lot of training, a lot of education, making sure that every new employee, because you know we do have new Two people starting with Ulta every single day uh, are you know, reflective of our values, and and, uh, and so I see that one is what you know this always on activity that we have to uh, you know focus on helping every single person deliver a great experience, and it's a top of mind focus for me. I do think the the four actions we call out in in the report we called out intentionally because I do think they are the hardest. Right, and I think if I were to take the one on, put more black brands on the shelf, I think as Dave said, you know, collectively the industry might be able to, to rally to, to drive that. What I'm excited about is the amount of incubation activity and investment that beauty retailers and others are putting in, 
you know, black owned incubators. I think the notion of growing, moving from incubating to growing at least 500 brands, right? That's 10X what we're seeing today. I think that will take the action of the collective industry. I think the notion of minimizing the occurrence of beauty deserts, this will take the collective action of the industry. Um, you, you could argue in the same communities, there's other, you know, it's not just beauty deserts, but you know, there's a retail, there's retail deserts. And so how do you collectively move the retail industry? And then the one that I'm the most excited about is, and again, this will take the, the commitment of the industry is increasing the number of employees to at least 15% and potentially creating 60,000 new, new jobs, right? That will take the commitment of the industry, right? Not one retailer or beauty house can lead that alone. And I do think Dave and, and the team at Ulta Beauty is in a prime position to lead that, but it will take the industry to do that. So, you know, obviously as I, as I talk to, as the leader of the North American beauty practice, as I talk to CEOs of folks across the beauty industry, everything from large CPGs and large beauty houses, through beauty retailers, even the contract manufacturers and folks that, that are supplying ingredients. I think there's clearly broad recognition that this is an opportunity. And what I'm excited about is, is the opportunity for all of these folks to work together because it will take the collective industry to, to advance this. Um, and I'm excited that it's top of mind for, for most of the folks you know, that, that we have the opportunity to work with. You know, I think in all of this, a lot of us have asked ourselves, like, are we in a moment where there's all this like understanding? Are we in a movement, right? And like, is it going to be sustained or not? I think to both the point Dave and Christy made, it feels like we're in more of a movement. You know, underneath this all, the consumer is saying they want to buy innovative products and they want to buy products from Black founder and people of color in general, right? And we also know the trend in the Black consumer um, in the U.S. and the growth we're going to see in that consumer segment over the next 10 years. And so underneath it all, it's good business. <laughs> and I think that retailers want people to shop in their stores. And for you to be able to attract people, you're going to have to have the products they want. So no, it's not a good thing to do. It's a good business thing to do, which I think is a different thing. And so I think that part, you know, feels good. And then on the why it's hard to get action here, you know, Christy and I and the work we do, we always say when it's a cross-functional problem, it's really hard. This is like a cross-industry problem, which is really hard. And getting all of the actors together and sort of align, because again, it's an end-to-end -end journey. So if I'm a Black founder and I have access to data, but I don't have investment, you know, then I don't make it through the funnel, right? And so we really have to figure out how to pull all of the different stakeholders together, how to get an equal level of aspiration, and then how to get folks coordinated if we really want to move the needle on that. I think that's the hard work, but I feel like, you know, the fact base and the, the aspiration is there. Now I think it's the coordination to say, can we turn that into outcomes? You know, in the past two years, many companies have made, you know, proclamations, right, about social justice, and they've hired chief diversity officers or DEI advisors. They've launched a plethora of DEI initiatives, and some have had more impact than others. What advice would you, Dave, give to CEOs about how they can truly move the needle on this front? I'm not going to claim to have all the answers. I'm not sure I should be giving CEOs uh, a ton of advice. I've, I've been a CEO here for a year. I'm learning from everybody else. But I do believe the change that we've made at, and the evolution that we've been on is to so firmly embed this throughout our culture, throughout our team, to make sure everyone recognizes the importance 
of us driving positive change in the world around us, and then specifically in key areas of opportunity, like with our Black consumers and all the things we've been talking about today. I believe that if we get the team behind it and we're driving with focus and clarity and commitment, we'll make mistakes. We won't get everything right. We'll have to redirect, but our momentum will push us into a positive place that will continue to help every one of our guests discover the possibilities that lie within them through the power of beauty, which is what our mission statement is all about. And so if you bring the whole team along, don't make this a project or a side note or, or just a department's responsibility, but embed it in the culture. Talk about these initiatives every time we're to get, we're, you're together with the team. Uh, keep them top of mind yourself. Then I think more positive change will happen. And it's certainly something I'm, I've been experiencing at Ulta and a commitment that I have to continue to drive more positive change. Tiffany and Christy, when you advise CEOs on this topic, what's sort of, you know, your one main message? Like if they forgot everything else, but had, but kept this one message in mind, what would it be? It is important to have a big aspiration because like we won't get to where we're trying to get to, right? There's lots of challenges. There's lots of potential, but we won't get there unless we start with a big aspiration, but then breaking it down into things where you can put wins on the board, right? And really have an impact because I think that you know, it is that engine of like getting things done, even if it means starting small against that big aspiration that I think we've seen folks who are successful, you know, do. There's also this idea about um, continuing to be in a peer set or in a group to challenge your thinking. The aspiration has to stay high. How do you stay accountable? It's one of the reasons why we like the 15% pledge, because it's this idea of what are we saying we're going to accomplish and a little bit of how are you making progress against that? Um, but continuing to challenge. I'm exactly in the same spot with maybe two um, enhancements or builds. One is I think starting with the aspiration and breaking into actions is important, but I also find that you can't be great at everything. And so even against that aspiration, are you really going to lean into one element? Is it about, you know, your own recruiting and hiring what you can control? Is it about, you know, uh, you know, monetary investments like Dave, the $50 million that you can control? So start with things you can control um, and try to be excellent at those. And, and then hopefully, uh, you know, the rest will follow. And then I also think the other thing I would encourage is in addition to diversity of thoughts and perspectives and having folks that will challenge you, um, like I know, Dave, you've done with, you know, Tracy Ellis Ross is your sort of DEI advisor, also being part of the industry and continuing to bring together, you know, competitors, peers, et cetera, to exchange thoughts and ideas. I think this is a topic that there is really no degree of competitiveness. If everyone advances, the collective industry wins. So just taking that spirit of um, you know, peer-like relationships and, and collective advancement is the other thing that I would encourage um, folks in the industry to do. As Tiffany you know, used the word of moving from a, a moment to a movement, as we know we've been successful, if at the end of this, we're not talking about products for black consumers, but we're talking about products that meet the needs of black consumers, but that can be applicable to all consumers. Beauty is so much about self-expression. It's not about the superficial. And if you believe that, which we do, then inherently beauty is, is diverse. It has to be because every individual brings their own expression to the world. You know, we did join the 15% pledge. We doubled the number of black owned brands we have in our assortment last year. We're adding many more this year and making sure that not only do they 
arrive at Ulta Beauty, but they thrive at Ulta Beauty. There's so much opportunity ahead, and I'm glad that uh, we at Ulta Beauty are on this journey. Uh, we're committed to driving change, and I'm also grateful that this report has helped identify and focus effort both for us, and I believe it will across the industry to drive even more positive change going forward. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com very soon. To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.